Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. ESG has become established as a key business theme as companies and investors seek to navigate the climate crisis, energy transition, social megatrends, mounting regulatory attention, and pressure from other stakeholders. The rapidly evolving landscape has become inundated with acronyms, buzzwords, and lingo, and we aim to break these down with industry experts. Welcome to ESG Currents, brought to you by Bloomberg Intelligence, your guide to navigating the evolving ESG space one topic at a time. I am Eric Kane, Director of ESG Research at Bloomberg Intelligence, and I'm joined today by Andy Stevenson, Senior ESG Climate Analyst, and we're your hosts for today's episodes. Hey, Andy, how's it going? Hey there, Eric. I'm, I'm well. Great. So today we're talking about the link between national security and climate change, and we're joined by Aaron Sikorsky, who is Director of the Center for Climate and Security and the Director for the International Military Council on Climate and Security. Aaron, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So let's get started, and maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the Center for Climate Security, and as you describe it, your lines of effort. Sure. So, you know, the Center for Climate and Security has been around for a little over a decade, and we're a solutions-oriented research institute focused on tackling systemic climate and ecological security risks, as our name would suggest, right? So uh, we really focus on breaking down silos across disciplines because we think it's important to make sure that climate change considerations are integrated into security policies and that security concerns are integrated into climate policy. Sometimes we call this climate proofing security policy or you can call it security proofing climate policy, right? It goes both ways. <laughs> so what we, we, we try to do is a few different things. We do research and analysis, like every good think tank, right, at, on these risks, how climate change is shaping security risks, affecting U.S. security institutions. We then take that research to uh, help develop policies. What do we do about it, right? It's one thing to identify the problem. It's another thing to change how we do business to address the problem. And then we host resources and communities of practice on the intersection of climate change and security because one uh, key gap that we've identified is, is a national security workforce that can really understand and address climate issues. So building a climate strong national security workforce, we run fellowship programs, we do a lot of education, um, we bring scholars and practitioners together in different working groups. The International Military Council that you mentioned is, is the international version of that uh, with a lot of NATO partners for the US, for example. Um, so we're really focused on operationalizing change in the security community to manage in, in a climate uh, changed world. 
Wonderful. Um, and the center recently issued a report on the intersection of climate change, food security, and national security policy. Can you walk us through some of the key findings? Sure. You know, it's very clear that the food security crisis globally is growing. The system is under severe strain. It was already under strain prior to the war, combination of climate change, conflict, and the COVID-19 pandemic. Layered on top of that, you know, a decline in exports of wheat and fertilizer from Ukraine and Russia because of the war, got record high food prices. At the same time, you've got record numbers of extreme weather events across the globe the past couple of years that have been, you know, decimating wheat crops in China, for example, or negatively affecting harvests in India and the United States and East Africa, right? And so all of these things together have created what the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems, quite a mouthful, but what they've called is an era of sustained high food prices or endemic and widespread risks to global food security. So with this report, you know, taking that as a given that this is the world we're in right now, we wanted to look at, okay, how are the communities trying to address these risks uh, working together or not, right? When you're talking the climate community, the food security community, and the security community, how are they how are they working together? And our two of our key findings in, in the report, one is that current food security policy is largely focused on immediate emergency response instead of longer-term resilience building. And on the one hand, this is understandable, right? When you have high food insecurity, you have a famine in East Africa, your focus is going to be on humanitarian response. But if we're entering this kind of endemic, sustained crisis period, we can't always be in that emergency response mode, right? That we have to find ways to invest um, in building resilience, in climate smart agriculture, climate smart policies, right? That, that um, balance out this, what we see as a difference between, you know, global humanitarian aid on the one hand has grown by more than 180% in recent years, which is a six times the rate of growth in development assistance. So there's a mismatch there in terms of um, that immediate response versus longer-term resilience was one finding. The second key finding of the report is that food insecurity is often mentioned or addressed as a byproduct of climate change and seen as a precursor to instability. Rarely is our do policymakers focus on the, the other way around, that policies and interventions that address food issues could also be security enhancing. So, and we focus on this because if we're looking at ways to try and get policymakers to invest more, right, in climate smart agriculture, in food security policies that are sustainable, one of the arguments we need to be able to make to them is that this is an investment in U.S. national security, right? And so finding ways to make those links, I think, will um, help get at that first finding, which is that we just need more investment writ large in longer-term policies. So so the, the purpose of this report was really just a first exploration of, of these silos or divides between these three different communities, uh, the climate, the food, and the national security communities, and how we can better bring them together going forward. Thank, thanks for that, Aaron. That was really, really a great explanation. And, and you know, when I when you think of national security, I mean, I, I actually, food and water seem to be pretty principal to uh, that security. So, uh, why do you think? And if you think about, 
a conflict like Rwanda or, you know, there's many conflicts in the world where you, you've really seen war break out over food and water. Um, why do you think that this is becoming like this is not already a known concern uh, amongst the uh, national security folks? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And I spent a good chunk of my career in the U.S. intelligence community and and have thought about this a lot. Right. Like, you know, these these issues are recognized and 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 folks understand the connections. But yet the level of action and investment just doesn't match that. Right. I, I will say I think it is it's getting better. Right. Recently, the director of the CIA Reference what he called problems without passports in a, a world uh, in an op-ed that he wrote, and he he put those on the same level as as other other issues. And when he mean, said problems without passports, he meant things like global health or food insecurity, climate. The national security strategy of the Biden administration, you know, has a line in it that says, "Look, nothing else matters if parents cannot feed their children." Recognizing that these transnational global issues should be on par with with other issues. But I think the, the problem is, is translating that acknowledgement into action, right? And I think there are th- three reasons why that's been really hard for the national security community. One is that they are syst- often systemic and compound risks, right? It's not linear. It's not that this climate hazard causes conflict or that food insecurity here leads to interstate war, right? <laughs> it's not country A invading country B. It's much more complex and systemic. And we're not really wired that way, I think, in the foreign policy bureaucracy to to manage that. You know, you've got country directorates, regional directorates at the National Security Council, at the State Department, um, with people who may be real experts in, in the politics of a specific country, but they're not trained or organized in a way to kind of bring in multiple risks. And I still think, too, there is a lingering perspective that's just a cultural issue that they're not, quote, real security risks. There's often been this framing of soft versus hard security issues or even human security versus national security, right? Um, and, and I think that is, is hard to, to overcome um, in just the, the literature of international relations, the, the kind of culture of, of how folks are brought up. So I think for all those reasons, getting from that acknowledgement to to actual action is is still a is still a gap. Uh, shifting to a more visible issue with respect to the military, uh, we are starting to see more of the military personnel being deployed for climate related activity. You think about the flooding that we've seen in India and China, uh, typhoons that we've seen in the Philippines. Uh, is this becoming the new normal, Aaron? And are these militaries being deployed, uh, expected to be deployed more and more as sort of first response to climate events? Yeah, it's it's a great question and something we at the Center for Climate and Security have been watching closely. We actually uh, launched at the beginning of the summer something we call the Military Response to Climate Hazards Tracker or MERCH, because this is Washington, we need to have an acronym, right? So the MERCH tracker. Um, and and it's globally uh, keeping track of, of military, military responses around the world. And, you know, militaries have always had some role in natural disasters, right? Like it isn't, it isn't completely new. But what's new is the pace and intensity of, of the response. The U.S. National Guard, for example, um, the number of uh, person hours that they put into fighting wildfires just over the past five years has gone up uh, significantly, 
right? So it's, it's a, it's a potential trade-off. What isn't being done when they're, when they're responding to these hazards? I mean, if you look at this summer in Canada, for example, which has faced wildfires the whole summer, the military has been deployed every day to a different province, right? Um, and you've got leaders in Canada in the military and in the security services talking about the strain it's putting on the military, a military that's already struggling in some cases to meet its recruitment goals, right? Um, you know, what does Canada, there's, there's discussions about what Canada might need to do differently. Does it need a different type of emergency response capability that isn't the military, right? Similar conversations are taking place in Australia. Um, we see uh, South Africa, Last year, where the chief of defense in South Africa, you know, posited that they needed to set up a new branch of the military that was specifically focused on uh, disaster response because it was becoming such a big part of what they needed to do. So there are really tough questions that are being asked. I also think in some countries where militaries have poor human rights records, for example, um, the frequent use of them to respond to hazards is also creates other problems or other security issues. So there's a lot of a lot of different questions here. The US government is is looking at this very closely. You know, each of the services has developed their own uh, climate security strategies. And one of the things they're looking at is the amount of of humanitarian assistance and disaster response that is needed, uh, what kind of tools they have in their tool belt you know, what kind of, what the trade-offs are in terms of planning elsewhere. Uh, but I was just looking this morning, I mean, the National Guard in the U.S., obviously they're still deployed in Hawaii. They're deployed in California right now. They've got uh, lots of them deployed Florida in Louisiana, now. fighting wildfires there. Florida, yes, exactly. So um, it's it's all over the place. Um, and certainly uh, will only, I mean, this, you know, the summer isn't a one-off, right? This is a preview of what's to come. So if you're planning 10, 15, 20 years out, um, this is this is an important question. That's great. Um, just just wanted to follow up on that from a, from the costs. You know, what you're describing is a very expensive problem as well as being a, a very uh, a difficult one logistically, right? So you you think about a country. Uh, this is really shifting gears a bit, but you think about what happened to. Pakistan this uh, last year with the extreme flooding, right? It costs uh, 2,000 lives were lost, 8 million people displaced, you know, $15 billion of economic damages in a place like Pakistan, which is a lot of money in Pakistan, obviously. It's a smaller uh, economy, economic uh, factor. And you, you, and then you end up with this problem of, well, how do you address these problems in a way that doesn't, that helps resolve them over time? And really, you're just trying to do the best you can to limit the impact uh, rather than obviously address it completely. But you are going to be saddling these countries with debt. Uh, it is a very, very a difficult trade-off in the context of the military, but also broadly in the context of how governments spend money. Right. No, absolutely. And, you know, you saw after the floods in Pakistan last year, which happened not long before the the COP meeting in, in Egypt, that Pakistan became a leader speaking out for what they, you know, it's called loss and damage, right? Investment from the developed world, from the global North who have been the biggest emitters into the global South to help them manage uh, some of these risks and, and pay what, what is called reparations. 
Um, and I think that will be a big part of the conversation at this upcoming COP as well in UAE. And how do we, you know, invest in adaptation? How, what role is there for the World Bank and IMF and others in managing this, which of course is not a military question per se, but if we're thinking about preventing instability, preventing long-term risks in a nuclear armed state like Pakistan that doesn't have good relationships with its neighbors, right? You know, the the way to address yeah. this right now isn't a military question and we don't want it to become a military question, right? And so thinking about the role for USAID in the US, the State Department, you know, financing, all of that um, is, is buying down risk into the future, right? Um, I do think you know, as I mentioned earlier, the the military in Pakistan has played a big role in in response to the floods last year, and and of course Pakistan's facing floods again this year, right? Punjab province has been repeatedly hit with extreme monsoon weather that's led to multiple military deployments in the past month or so. Um, so you don't have time to recover from one hazard before the next one hits, right? Uh, yeah, I worry a little bit about the role the military is playing, just given its its track record in in the country. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily positive for for building strong democratic governance and institutions. From a U.S. military perspective, I think you know as they think about their own war gaming and planning, I certainly think it's important for them to be thinking about you know what may be considered low probability or high impact scenarios of state instability or collapse in, in Pakistan or conflict with its neighbors, right? And, and bringing in that, that climate lens to that game, that war gaming to better understand, you know, the role we think climate might play. I think it would be really important to look back at the response in 2022 and see, you know, how it was handled, what the costs were, all of that. Um, the, the last thing I'll say here that I think is important too is, you know, there's been a rapid attribution study already. We know that the floods last year were made more likely by climate change, and that played a very uh, big role. But there are other things that played a role, too, in how bad the floods were, right? There are governance choices that the government made around where folks could build, right, in terms of building in floodplains or building next to rivers. There were... Um, you know, choices made about uh, investments in local communities, all sorts of things. And so when we talk about, you know, helping countries build resilience to these hazards, we're not just talking about climate stuff necessarily, right? Or like physical climate right. um, infrastructure or related infrastructure. It's not just seawalls or, or other things like that. It's, it's, it's softer things softer resilience measures that, that relate to governance and, and all sorts of other things that, that may or may not be directly related to climate. And so when we think about investing and getting out of that cycle that you talked about, um, some of that investment is, is in other areas as well, I would say. Aaron, that's an interesting segue to uh, the next question I wanted to ask you. You've been talking, of course, about events like floods and, and those that occurred in, in Pakistan. Um, I'm curious how you think about something like El Nino, which is perhaps, you know, more predictable than where the next flood will be. We, we know many of the impacts that El Nino will have. So when we think about more planning, how do you think about planning for a known known like El Nino and the climate impacts that that's bound to have? 
Yeah, it's it's such a such a good question, and I think if we could figure this out, we could make so much progress, right? Because it's not this isn't a what was Donald Rumsfeld's phrase, the unknown unknowns. This is a known known. We know this is going to happen, and we know some of the tools we have in our toolbox to to manage it. So it's more of a question of you know choosing to make the investment, and I think that's where the you know getting getting to folks to have a different risk calculus and a risk understanding of risk, if you will. Um, you know, I've been reading about the tragedy in, in Maui, in Hawaii, and there were report upon report upon report about the wildfire risk there. And they knew that the, the non-native grasses, right, that had been, had been allowed to grow close to the community there and that dried out every year with hotter temperatures, right? They got really lush early in the year with lots of rain and then they would dry out and they knew that was a wildfire risk and reports had been written about what they should do about it, but no one took action, right? And I imagine part of the calculus was like, well, that'll cost us money and we don't want to spend that money now for a possible future risk, but not a guaranteed future risk in in their minds, right? And I think if you asked anyone now, of course they would make that investment. Of course it would have made sense to do that, right? No one would say that was the right choice. Um, so in many of these cases, it's not about not knowing. It's about a different way of, of assessing risk and, and making plans. Um, and I, I think, you know, this goes back to a point I made earlier about this idea of co-benefits is, you know, there are so many things that can be done to manage both climate hazards and the climate security risks themselves that don't just benefit, you know, in, in the face of that climate hazard, but they benefit in the face of a lot of different things, right? Um, better governance in Pakistan, uh, for example, better building codes um, and would help uh, communities with economic development, right? With, with building wealth, with, um, you know, all, all sorts of things you could do there that whether they had another flood or not would, would be a good thing to do for Pakistan security, for the, the regional security. Um, so finding places like that to, to invest in, I think, can, can help um, make a better case for that investment. Uh, I think, you know, a few years ago, I heard a climate reporter was interviewed on CNN, and she was talking about the fact that in the future, she thought every reporter would have to be a climate reporter because there isn't a beat that reporters cover that won't in some way be touched by climate. And I think it's the same in the national security and the foreign policy community. So planning for a known known like El Nino means that it's not just the folks in NOAA and NASA and the climate offices that need to plan for it, but it's every desk officer at the State Department, every you know, embassy abroad needs to think about, okay, how is El Nino going to affect our work here in X country? How is it going to affect the government that we engage with? How might it affect our, you know, development uh, plans on the ground? And they need to bring that in to their work and have the tools um, at hand to be able to do that. Because every, every issue, you know, every foreign policy issue is going to have a climate dimension in some way or an, or an El Nino dimension in this case, um, amplified by climate, of course. Yeah, I would, I would add that it seems like, as you say, we're just we're, we're, we're getting the example and then we're dealing with it as opposed to dealing with the kind of universal problem that these are these things can pop up anywhere and we're just seeing it happen. Right. More and more. Right. Right. Um, I, I did want to ask you a question about China, if that's okay. Yeah, please. Um, yeah, so I mean, 
China has as many problems related to climate change as any country, as, I, as far as I can tell. Yep. They have water issues. They have certainly have food issues. They grow all their crops in the north instead of the south. They have all sorts of uh, climate-related issues. And I just wonder um, from you know their risks and how they're managing those risks, are there any things that they're doing that, that we should be doing? Yeah. So I think China's approach is really important for the United States and others in the West to understand, not only for, as you say, for potential learning opportunities, right, but also so that we can better understand China's changing national interests and its position on the world stage. There are really three things that I see China doing, and this is from a report we released last year on China's climate security vulnerabilities, and it really largely mirrors the country's approach to other perceived major challenges. The first thing they're doing is pursuing, obviously, extensive infrastructure and public works interventions. The second thing they're doing is trying to muzzle or minimize public critiques or concerns about <laughs> those interventions or about their response to climate hazards, right, to, to minimize risks of instability. And then the third thing is on the international stage, they're trying to take advantage of the issue to advance their position, you know, either vis-a-vis -vis their neighbors, but also in competition with the U.S., by casting you know, itself as a leader and a partner on climate concerns on the world stage. And so I think there are a couple things the U.S. can learn from that. Certainly not the muzzling or minimizing of public critiques or concerns, except to learn that that, that strategy will only get you so far, I think. And you know, as we saw with the COVID protests last year, um, and I think you saw a little bit in some of the reaction to the recent flooding in China uh, and the response of, you know, opening floodgates so that instead of flooding, you know, happening, more flooding happening in Beijing, it went to smaller towns um, in, in other floodplains. There was some complaining there. There's only so much you can muzzle or minimize it, right? Um, so that, that's a lesson for the U.S. But, but the bigger lessons, you know, on the adaptation side and the infrastructure and public works interventions, China has a national adaptation plan that is very clear-eyed about the level of warming they expect right, over the next 20 years or so, they don't minimize the fact that we're on a not great trajectory in terms of cutting emissions. And so they're planning for that at a national level. The U.S. does not have a national adaptation plan. Uh, I think that's a huge uh, oversight uh, and problem for the United States to not think about how are we going to allocate resources and what are the big infrastructure, the big muscle movements we're going to need to make in terms of preparing for these risks. Um, you know, Alice Hill, who's at the Council on Foreign Relations and is a board member of ours, has been very vocal for many years on, on this issue and has written eloquently about the need for a national adaptation plan. So that's one thing we can learn. I think the other thing on the international stage, I think the United States is often missing an opportunity in terms of um, investing in, in climate resilience and adaptation for our allies and partners as a way to strengthen those relationships in the face of the competition with China. So I think we should lean forward uh, more on that because again, it's this idea of co-benefits, right? If you look at the Pacific Islands or you look at other allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific, if the US can invest in building stronger um, resilience there to their infrastructure or meeting some of their, their climate challenges and climate needs, um, not only does that answer what those countries are asking for, when you ask a lot of those countries what's top on your security threat list, climate is at the top, right? So we're, we're meeting what they ask for. But also then if we need those countries for something 
to partner with us if we need to leverage bases we have in those countries, military bases. Um, they're going to be better able to help us because they're more resilient. And so that's something, you know, I think I think the U.S. is getting better um, and has made more investments recently, except that I will say Congress now is, is looking to cut a lot of those investments in this year's um, appropriations bill. And so I think that's a mistake. You know, it's often held up. You see members of Congress say, well, we can't invest here on this climate stuff because competition with China is really the most important thing we need to focus on, as though the two of them are in opposition. When in actuality, investing in those, those climate programs abroad, investing in climate finance and climate adaptation would uh, advance our position in the competition with China in a way that, that benefits U.S. national security. Yeah, you say some of the as you mentioned some of those are very low cost options too. They're right. Not, they're not massive <laughs> exactly. dollars. They're they're much just it's just smart thinking and lessons learned more yep. than anything else. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, Aaron, maybe uh, one last question. Um, in my mind, climate has kind of long been something that people think about as being a, a future impact. Obviously, we've spoken a lot about how we're seeing the impacts of, of climate, you know, almost on a day-to-day basis now. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on timelines and whether you're seeing kind of an acceleration in the shift of uh, investments and preparedness uh, with respect to, you know, everything with that we've been talking about. Yeah, unfortunately, I certainly I don't think we're seeing an acceleration uh, or, or things moving quickly enough. Right. And I think especially in big bureaucracies like the Department of Defense or like the U.S. government, um, you know, rapid change is hard. <laughs> and the military, on the one hand, is good at, at planning for the long term. You know, they're building or planning to build or funding today ships and airplanes that will be built in 2035 and operate through 2060. Right. Um, but that means that a, you got to get the the climate investments right today, and 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 make sure that the assumptions that you're planning towards match what the climate will look like in 2060, as opposed to the climate of the past 10 or 20 years, right? Um, and so even some of the other things that the military is is doing, which are are good things, like making sure that coastal military bases are resilient to sea rise or sea level rise. Um, or rebuilding Tyndall Air Force Base, which is on the Gulf Coast of Florida, was hit by Hurricane Michael in 2018, completely decimated, right? It's, it, it takes a lot of time for those um, rebuilding and that investment and the resilience to, to come online. Tyndall is still under construction, right, five years later. Um, some of the other coastal bases they're working on with sea level rise, it, it's taken a decade from the point when, you know, Congress first said you should do this and appropriated some money till them finally finishing it. So I, I think, it, you know, I, I, I worry a lot that even as we recognize the, the risk and we start to change how we do business to manage these security risks, we're still moving too slowly. Um, but I think there are a couple ways, and if I can end on a problem, hopefully a more a more hopeful note, right? A, a couple ways we can we can speed that up. I mean, one is really looking for opportunities. I think for the military and the security community to get the most bang for their buck, um, and take advantage of changes that are happening in the world outside of of the military to accelerate 
their progress. And I'll give you an example of this, right? The military set a goal of getting all of their bases to be, all of their installations to run on carbon-free energy by 2035. One of the ways they can do that, particularly for the bases that, that plug into the local grid, is to just make sure that local grid is, to incentivize the local grid to be clean energy, right? So the military itself doesn't have to build anything new, but can work with the local community. An example of this is in Washington State. Uh, Lewis McCord is a military base out there, and the, it uses, it's on the, the local economy for its energy grid, and that, that energy grid is already uh, carbon, carbon neutral. And so they didn't expend any more dollars. It just changed what they were plugging into, basically. And so looking for more opportunities like that, I think. Um, you know, building a climate-strong workforce, as I mentioned before, building people who can think differently about some of these systemic risks and integrate that into their work, I think will make things uh, go faster. Um, and I think partnering with uh, our allies, right, with other countries who are also managing these risks. I mean, NATO, for example, is doing a lot of work on climate change right now. Um, the EU as well. I mean, they're facing these issues all over their backyard. They've got the biggest wildfire right now in EU history in Greece, right? And they're collaborating on investments in emergency response. They're doing this, um, you know, creative ways outside of the military that uh, are addressing it. And so I think learning from allies and partners will be really important as well um, to speed up that timeline. Uh, because, you know, as, as you, got, you guys know well, as we're seeing every day this summer, there's just really, really no time to waste. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I thought the conversation was absolutely fascinating. Really appreciate your time. Once again, uh, today we were joined by Erin Sikorsky. Uh, she is the director of the Center for Climate and Security and the International Military Council on Climate and Security. You can find more right, information. You. you can find more information on climate by going to BIESG on the Bloomberg terminal. If you have an ESG quandary or burning question you would like to ask BI's expert analysts, send us an email at esgcurrents at bloomberg.net. Thank you very much. Until next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.